0: Now, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people of Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them, said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that through from many hearts may be revealed. This is the reading of the word. Today we will be uh, lighting the Advent calendar of peace. Candle.
1: Well, good morning, Salt Church. Uh, this is not an optical illusion up here. I did not grow like 10 inches overnight. Uh, they made a huge stage uh, this morning. Our, our typical UNC people who set things up. Uh, we had a different crew this morning, so... If you have to strain your neck, I guess, to look at me and we apologize. I don't know what will happen next week. Anyway, I'm rambling. Uh, my name is uh, Jonathan Randall. I'm one of the pastors on staff. So glad that you guys did join us uh, this morning. If you do have a Bible, you can open that up to Luke chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be in the passage you just heard. We're actually in the midst that's been set up here of a series that we've uh, called Advent. Uh, the word Advent just simply means to arrive Or appear. And the church has typically taken some time around Christmas to look at that word in two different ways. We want to look at how Jesus advented or arrived into the world the first time as the baby Jesus, but also looking forward to the day when he will advent again and come back as a conquering king. And uh, typically, churches will spend about four weeks in this, and they'll look at Jesus as our hope, as our joy, as our peace, and as our love. And so uh, this morning, uh, we're going to unpack Jesus as our peace. We've already looked at Jesus as our hope and our joy, and this morning, we're going to look at Jesus as our peace. Well, at the start of uh, World War I in 1914, uh, one of the most craziest stories took place known as the Christmas Truce. I don't know if you guys uh, have heard about this, uh, but most of the war was fought in France. uh, And what they would do is the Allies and the Germans would dig these huge trenches where they would live and store all their stuff. And then they would come out into this area in the middle called No Man's Land, and that's where they would fight. And it was filled with mud and barbed wire and all the bombs and machine gun fire would rain down on No Man's Land. But on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day of 1914, the very first year of the war, the fighting stopped and actually Christmas caroling began to break out. And some of the soldiers got brave enough to go out into no man's land and start communicating with the other side. And what broke out was actually a Christmas celebration where people exchanged gifts and drinks uh, and presents and they even a game of soccer broke out in no man's land. This is a true story. You can look this up. And what's wild is one of the British soldiers wrote in his journal that a German soldier during this Christmas truce said this to him. Today we have peace. Tomorrow you fight for your country. I fight for mine. Good luck. That, that's, guys, that is the most bizarre story, I think, uh, in uh, the 20th century. Here are these soldiers having this calm celebration one day Throwing out bombs and machine gun fire and waging war the next, right? And my question to this whole story is, did the Christmas truce of 1914, was it able to solve the conflict of World War I? The obvious answer is no, they would go on to fight for four more years. And the, guys, the reason it couldn't solve the conflict uh, of World War I is because it didn't have the power to bring true, lasting, and complete peace. Because there's just no way that a, a Christmas celebration was going to be able to solve the injustice of the war and the innocent lives being killed and land being taken over and people being evacuated from their homes. There's just no way a ceasefire at Christmas was going to cure everything that ailed the war or ailed the world during World War I. And yet, church, my fear is that I don't think we've really learned our lesson some 109 years later. Many of us come to the Christmas season and we hope that a 24-hour period of celebrating will somehow block out all of the conflicts all around us and make them go away and just bring that peace that we've been looking for. Maybe if we buy enough presents, we can fill the emptiness and satisfy our loneliness. Maybe if we watch enough Christmas movies, then we can distract ourselves from the pain of a health crisis. Maybe if we decorate and hear Christmas music and run a million miles an hour, we can distract ourselves that this is the first year we're going to spend Christmas without that loved one in our life. And it doesn't work. In fact, it can do the opposite. Because I know so many people at this time of year, Christmas makes us more stressed out. It makes us more anxious. It makes us more restless, not at peace. Now, please hear me. I'm the most pro-Christmas person probably in this room. We decorate in November. We, we've got two Christmas trees, we will exchange presents, we do elf on the shelf in our house, um, like we do it all, I love the holiday of Christmas, but here's the thing, if I find my ultimate peace in a holiday, I'm dead in the water. It just does not have the power to deliver. And so how do we get to true, lasting, and complete peace? Well, our world will tell you that if you want peace, you need to avoid conflict, But I would argue that the ironic truth of Scripture is that if you want peace, you need to face conflict dead on. There's no other way to get peace. Peace is actually found through conflict. Merry Christmas, right? Like, this is not the top, typically the topic we talk about. Like, I'd love to see K-Lo, or K-Love turn this into a Christmas song, right? It's the most quarreling time of the year, but we will get peace if we have a big feast and we all get along. Chris, I'm coming for the worship team. Um, listen, I get it. This is not the, the, the Christmas holly jolly message, but it's true. There is no peace unless we go through conflict. Think about it. How do you get that peaceful euphoria of completing your last final exam? You have to go through the agony of studying and preparing and writing papers. How does a surgeon bring peace to your body if it has a tumor? It's gotta, he's got to cut you. He's got to draw blood. He's got to pull it out. How does a therapist bring peace to somebody who is downcast or depressed? They have to bring up the past. They have to get you to remember and confront painful memories and trauma. Oftentimes in counseling, you feel worse before you feel better. How did World War I finally get to peace? They had to fight. And if we want peace, it's going to require us to face conflict head on. And that's what I want to do this morning. I want to show us three different areas where we can have peace. Peace with God, peace with our lives, and peace with others. But in each one of these areas, I'm going to show that it's going to take a conflict in order to get there. So, the first area of peace and the conflict we need to go through to get there is this peace with God needs the cross. Peace with God needs the cross. In verse 29 of Luke chapter 2, Simeon says this Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Why does Simeon say that he has peace in this moment? It's not because there's peace. Politically, and nations are getting along, it's not because Simeon is having a peaceful day and got to do errands without the kids, right? He, he has peace in this moment because his eyes have seen the salvation of God. But put yourself in the story. What are his eyes on? What is Simeon actually looking at in this moment? He's holding it. It's the baby Jesus. Jesus equals salvation. Verse 25 says that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That word consolation means comfort. And in Old Testament prophecy, it was the idea that salvation was going to come through or comfort was going to come through a person. And this person was the Messiah or the Christ. He was going to provide comfort for people by bringing salvation to the world. And so for Simeon and the Jewish people, salvation wasn't so much of a process as it was a person. And what gave Simeon unbelievable comfort was knowing that the child in his hands would bring the salvation the world so desperately needed. And so again, Simeon, here's a man at peace, and he has peace not because it's so much something that God has given him, but, but it rather it's because that it's who God is. God is peace. I love the way that uh, C.S. Lewis says it. He says, God can't give us peace apart from himself. Because there is no such thing. If if God is our peace, then the fundamental question that we have to ask this morning is how do we get that? How do we get the peace of God? It means we have to accept or receive God on His own terms. This means we have to acknowledge that God did not step into human history to tell you how to live, to give you a better life, to start a revolution, or perform some miracles. No, Jesus came into the world and stepped into human history for one purpose and one purpose only. We just sang about it. It's to bring salvation. That's why Simeon says, my eyes have seen your salvation. But a follow-up question that I think is even more important is, How does Jesus save us? How does he do this? This is where I think a conflict comes into play. See, to say that Jesus came into the world to save it implies that there is some destruction that threatens to undo us. You don't have need for peace unless there's a war. And we don't have need for salvation unless there is something going on in our hearts that threatens to undo us. And there is something in our hearts that threatens to undo us. The Bible calls this destruction sin. Sin is the reason we need salvation. And make no mistake, sin is not simply doing bad things. It's not simply making mistakes. Sin is saying, I have the right to live my life the way that I want to. God, you don't have the right to tell me what to do. And sin is a form of cosmic treason because what we're doing is we're telling the creator of the universe, you don't have the right to be the ruler over of my life. I'm going to do what I want to do. You're not good. You don't know better than me. I know better than you. I will dictate my life how I want. That's ultimately the heart of sin. And guys, think about it. Like If I drafted the U.S. Constitution or the United States Constitution of John Randall, And I just started drawing borders around my house, and I didn't pay the taxes, and I didn't follow the cops, and I started a revolution against the city of Greeley, and I wanted to create my own country. I'm not only committing treason, but now I've become an enemy of the state, right? The same is true between us and God. To sin is not only a form of treason, it makes us enemies of God. But the radical, amazing goodness of the gospel is that when Jesus comes into our world, he doesn't wage war against us. We are his enemies. He has every right to throw bombs and shoot bullets at us, but he doesn't. He turns the bombs against himself. He turns the the guns against himself, and he goes to the conflict of the cross in order for us to have peace. Colossians 1, 19 through 20 says it this way. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, to give us peace, in order for us to get the peace of God, Jesus didn't come at Christmas and say, all right, guys, you need to play nice. You need to get along. Stop fighting. Everybody just live at peace with one another, right? Why, does, why didn't Jesus do that? Because it's not gonna work. Jesus is not some mediation guru with a corporate binder that's saying, here's five ways I can resolve conflict in your life. One of my repeated failures as a parent is uh, I always, when my kids are fighting, I'm often just yelling at them to be like, stop fighting, love your sister, get along, Right? And, and it never works, by the way. Like, that never works. Why? Because, well, in part because I'm kind of a lazy parent and I never get down to the heart of why they actually are fighting with each other. But in, more importantly, I can't get inside my child's heart and deal with the sin problem. Calls for peace without dealing with sin will never lead to peace. There has to be a conflict. And Jesus enters into that conflict. In order to give us peace, Jesus deals with sin, and he does so through the conflict of the cross. I think this is one of the most missed messages of Christmas. Luke 2.14 is one of the most famous Christmas verses ever. It's when the angels appear to the shepherds. Um, it's Charlie Brown Christmas. He's, he's the, uh, you'll see it read uh, at the end of that uh, cartoon, and, it, and it's usually read like this. Glory to God in the highest. And peace on earth, goodwill towards men, right? As if the way in in which to bring peace on earth is if we just went around and, and practiced goodwill towards other men. That's almost what that verse is saying there. But that's actually a poor translation of that verse. A better translation is this. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he, God, is pleased. Guys, that's a radical statement because how can the God of the universe be pleased with sinners? How can he have favor over those who he's enemies with? Jesus has to deal with sin. That is your answer. And in order to deal with sin, there has to be blood. There has to be conflict. If I commit treason, the U.S. government can't just come to me and say, oh, I forgive you, John Randall. Like, you're a good person in all these other areas. We'll just let this one slide. No, 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 no. If I commit treason against the U.S. government, there's laws on the books that say I should be locked up in a prison for life. In fact, I can get the death penalty. They should hang me for that, right? The same is true with the gospel. And yet the amazing love of Jesus is that when he came into this world, he took on that death penalty for us. He spills his own blood instead of spilling ours. He is hanged on a tree for us. And because Jesus goes through the conflict of the cross, you and I can have the peace of God because we now have peace with God. We're no longer enemies. We're now friends. Now, before I move on, I just want to stress that, guys, you can't have any other kind of peace in your life until you first have peace with God. You'll never find peace in your lives You'll never find peace with other people until you first find peace with God. Remember what C.S. Lewis said: "There is no peace apart from God." We have to have first peace with God. To illustrate this, uh, one of my favorite things at Christmas time is Christmas lights. Um, but I'm kind of a sucker for a particular kind of look. Uh, I love the old school, uh, like bigger light bulbs that uh, have kind of the matted ceramic uh, look to it. Um, those are those are my favorite and. Um, uh, I love putting them up every year. But here's the thing that I discovered uh, about these particular lights uh, is they suck a ton of electricity. Uh, and I found this out the hard way because I strung them all together last year and kept blowing out fuse after fuse after fuse instead of doing it in sections. I almost channeled a little Clark Griswold from Christmas Vacation and wanted to kick Santa and the reindeers in the front yard. Um, but here's the thing. The reason I say this is if the fuse went out, the whole strand didn't work. I could tinker with every single light bulb on that strand, it did not matter. If the fuse didn't work, the whole strand is out because it's the same, the same is true with the peace of God. If we don't have peace with God, we can't really have true peace anywhere else. Peace with God is the fuse that allows us to have peace anywhere else in our lives. We can tinker with peace in every other area of our life but if we don't first have peace with God, it does not matter. But once we do have peace with God through the cross, then we can have peace in our lives and with others. However, it's going to require some more conflict. This leads me to my next area of peace. Peace with our lives needs God's control. If we want peace with our lives, it needs God's control. I want to come back to the life of Simeon here for a moment. Luke 2.26 says this. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Because that's a fascinating promise that Simeon got here. You're not going to die until you see Jesus, until you see the Messiah. And what I find interesting about this is Simeon isn't just getting peace with God because of salvation, although that's true. But Simeon is also having peace with his life because he's trusting in God's sovereignty over it. Think about it for a moment. Simeon was promised that he would not see death until he saw the Messiah. Imagine the peace of mind and the rest and, and, the, and just the sense of like, oh, I can breathe, right? That, that Simeon has. He has unbelievable peace in this moment because he knows that I can't do anything that's going to screw up God's plan for my life. Now, we don't have the exact same promise of Simeon and that we're not going to die. Like, we haven't been told the time of our death. But the the, the truth that still remains for us is, guys, that we can have peace in our lives knowing that we can't possibly mess up God's plans for our lives. One of my favorite quotes of all time is from Henry Martin he was a missionary to India in the late 1700s. He died actually at the age of 31 from the plague uh, while he was out on the mission field. And he has this unbelievable quote. He says this, I am immortal until God's work for me to do is done. The Lord reigns. Man, that, that is a quote worthy of putting on our tombstones and putting on our lives. Did you know that you are immortal until God's work for you to do is done? Done. I believe that so much fear and anxiety exists in our lives because we honestly struggle to believe this. So so many of us struggle to have the peace that Simeon had because we honestly don't think at the end of the day that God is in control of our lives. And here's the thing: the reason we think that is because everywhere we look in our world, it seems like God isn't in control, right? Let's just take Simeon for example. Here's the guy that's promised you're not going to die until you see the promised Messiah. Who's the Messiah? The Messiah is the comforter, the one that's going to bring salvation, the one that's going to bring ultimate peace to the world. And yet here's Simeon, a man who's going into the temple every single day, wondering, is today going to be the day that I see this Messiah, the one that is promising peace. And every time Simeon goes into the temple, this is what he's running by. He's running by Roman soldiers. He's exchanging Roman coins and Roman currency. He's seeing Romans building buildings. And on every single one of these objects, the shields of the soldiers and on the coins that he's using in the marketplace and on the buildings would have been this symbol. It's a the letter P and an X smashed together. And what that symbol represented was the Pax Romana. It was the Roman peace. And the way that Romans got to peace is through a brutal regime of army conquering the known world at that time. And they'd been ruling it with an iron fist for 500 years. Here's a world that Simeon is living in where it does not look like God is in control. Rome looks like they're in control. God's not bringing peace, Rome is. And yet there is Simeon day after day after day going into the temple, believing and holding on to this promise that he would see a different king, a king who would bring a peace that was greater than anything the Roman Empire could ever imagine. If anyone had reason to fear, if anyone had reason for anxiety, if anyone had reason for a belief that God was not in control, it was Simeon. And yet, Simeon knows that there is nothing that can stop God's plan for his life. Salt Church, I I know just a handful of stories in this room, but I know enough to know that there are all, or I would say all of us in this room at some point struggle to believe that God is in control, that we feel that the world is just spinning out of control. Some of us have sat in a doctor's office and gotten that diagnosis that we didn't want to hear. And it feels like we're out of control. Some of us have kids that are not walking with Jesus. They don't want anything to do with the church. And anytime we try to have a conversation with them, we just push them further away. We feel out of control. Some of us have struggled to even get up this morning because when we go to social media, when we turn on the news, when we see our political climate and the problems that exist in this world, it's overwhelming. It's too much. The, the world is spinning out of control. So how do you get peace in those moments when it feels like God isn't in control? This is where conflict comes into play. See, part of the problem for you and for me, it's not just that we struggle to believe that God is in control. It's not just that we fail to believe that God is in control. Part of the problem for you and for me is that we want to be in control at the same time God is in control. And do you see how there's going to be a conflict with that? (laughs) There can't be two kings. If God is in control and you want to be in control, there's going to be a fight. There's going to be a conflict. But I would argue it goes even deeper than that because I think there's an internal conflict that goes on in us because until you die and go home to glory, there's going to be a part of you that always wants to take control, that does not want to trust that God is in control. And the Bible says we have to kill that part of ourselves, that we have to say no to that part, that we have to surrender over and over and over again to God's control and trust in him. But I don't know about you. Every time I do that, there's a fight, because there's a part of me that doesn't want to do that. And if, if you've ever gone to the Lord and, and str- or if you've ever gone to the Lord and not struggled surrendering control to Him, you've probably never really done that. Because there's a wrestle. There's a conflict, there's a fight. right? We want to give control, and yet, ah, we don't really want to. There's a wrestling match there. there's a conflict. But here's the thing, Church, if we embrace that conflict, there's peace on the other side of it. In fact, I would argue peace in our lives is directly related to how much we engage that internal battle of trusting God is in control. And believe it or not, this is actually a conflict that Mary, the mother of Jesus, would experience. Luke 2.35 says this, this as this small parenthetical statement where Simeon uh, tells Mary directly, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. What's Simeon referring to there? What's this sword? He's referring to the fact that Mary one day would stand before the cross and see her own baby boy mocked, beaten, whipped, and killed on a cross. But it's deeper than just the love of a mother and the grief that she would have gone through watching her son die. It also shatters any expectations she had of who Jesus was supposed to be. Remember, she knows that Jesus is the Son of God. There's a popular Christmas uh, song called Mary, Did You Know?, uh, and Bible nerds love to hate on that song because um, you can read the Gospels and you're like, well, on the one hand, Mary knew <laughs> who Jesus was. The angel showed up and said, like, this is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. This is the one Israel has been waiting for. But in another sense, Mary did not know who Jesus was. She did not know how Jesus was going to bring salvation to the world. She, she had no category for the cross. You actually see this play out in the Gospels too. Because in Mark chapter three, Mary's like actually wanting Jesus to shut up and stop like teaching because he's acting crazy in her mind. He didn't fit the categories of what the Messiah and the Son of God was supposed to be. And so when she gets to the cross, not only are her expectations of who Jesus was supposed to be shattered, but she's forced into this conflict inside her own heart. A A sword is piercing her soul where she's forced to ask the question, God, do I trust that you are in control? This is the worst moment in human history. All the chips got pushed in on Jesus. All of our hope rests in Jesus. He's the one to bring salvation. He's the Messiah. He's the comforter. He's the one to bring peace, and he dies? We've lost it all if he dies. And yet, God was never more in control than he was at the moment when Jesus cried out, it is finished. Because it was through the conflict of the cross that salvation, peace, comfort, all these things we pray for was brought to us. And it's the same sword that pierces Mary's soul that needs to pierce our soul too. Guys, this isn't some giant sword that like a knight has. Think more like a scalpel from a surgeon. We need heart surgery on us to expose that we don't trust that God is in control as much as we think we do that we're trusting in other things. But to the degree that we begin to trust that God is in control is the degree to which we will begin to have peace. When we moved uh, to Greeley last year to help start this church and plant um, uh, Salt Church, I would love to tell you that we moved here with just unbelievable faith and we were just ready to take on the world and that I was like, yes, let's go and I had all this excitement and some of that was there but guys, can I be honest with you? On the inside, internally, there was a conflict. There was a fight. There was a battle because I was wrestling with all these doubts and these questions. God, what if this fails? What if the church doesn't get off the ground? What if I don't have the abilities that are needed in order for this church to succeed? Who's going to provide for our family? Is this going to work? Is this something you even want me to do? At the end of the day, every single one of these doubts, every single one of these questions boiled down to this question. God, do I trust that you are in control? But here's what that conflict did. When I embraced those doubts and those questions, when I began to wrestle with them, has it exposed in my heart, that I was looking to so many other things for comfort other than God. That I was trying to find peace in all these other things other than God. I I was looking to the approval of other people instead of the approval of God. I was looking to the security of my job rather than the security that is found in Christ. I was looking to the stability of a paycheck rather than the provision of the Lord. I, I didn't. I wasn't forced to risk anything in that other job. Now I'm forced to risk, and now I'm forced to say, "God, are you going to be in control?" I put him in a space where he could actually be my peace and my comfort. And when I went through this wrestling match of faith, I learned to put my trust in God, and it opened up my heart to peace. See, when God is in control and you trust that, you can rest. You can breathe like Simeon, and you know that everything is going to turn out okay. God's got it. He's in control. The beautiful thing of the gospel is that we can look to the cross just like Mary. We, we, when the swords of life pierce our soul and we wonder, God, are you in control? We don't have to wonder long because we can look to the cross. And at the moment in Jesus' life, where human history would make or break, and it looked like God wasn't in control, guess what, he was never more in control. How much more is God in control in your life when it looks like he's not? You can trust him, He is in control. John 16, 33 says it this way, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, you will have conflict, right? But take heart, I have overcome the world. Peace with God needs a cross. Peace with our lives needs God's control. Lastly, peace with others needs the church. Peace with others needs the church. In Simeon's blessing over the baby Jesus, he says this about the salvation he is seeing. Verses 31 through 32 say that this salvation is one that God has prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Luke is quoting from the prophet Isaiah here, and he's saying, hey, this whole salvation thing, it was never meant just for Israel. It's meant for all people. It involves the Gentiles. That's the Bible's way of describing everyone who's not a Jew. God's salvation is for all people. But here's the thing. You don't have to read very far into your Bible to see that Gentiles and Jews don't exactly get along. (laughs) They hated each other. And so for Jesus to provide salvation for all people, he isn't just making peace with God for individuals one-on-one. No, no, no. God, when he entered into the world through human history and Jesus stepped on and provided salvation, he's providing salvation for all people, meaning not just peace with God, but peace with each other. uh, Ephesians 2 teaches this. Verses 14 through 18 say this. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both, that's Gentiles and Jews, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached, Peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access. In one spirit to the Father. Guys, peace with God is not just for you to enjoy a solo Christian life on your own. Peace with God is so that you might actually begin to have peace with other brothers and sisters in the church. In fact, I'll say it as bluntly as I can. The way in which you demonstrate that you have peace with God is by living at peace with other Christians. That's the way it reflects itself. And here's where the conflict comes into play. Because if you've ever tried to live at peace with other Christians and be united to them, it's like pulling your hair out sometimes, right? Being a part of a church is a conflict in and of itself because you're throwing a bunch of people together who shouldn't get along, who should hate each other, Gentiles and Jews. But because of Christ, they're now a new people, and they have peace with one another. So church, I'll be the first to tell you and admit that it is hard to live with Christians, right? They gossip, they're hypocrites, they eat their own. Right? They yell at you for not living the Christian life, and yet at the same time, they can sometimes be the most unjust, cruel, self indulgent people you've ever met. I know this because I am a Christian. These are my people, (laughs) right? But here's what I know the same Jesus who made peace with God for my brother and my sister down the street, who knows Jesus, also made peace with God with me. And if Jesus is going to extend peace to me and to that person, how much more should I be willing to come across the table? and extend peace to them as well. The way in which we live at peace with each other is actually being united as the church. Uh, Later in Ephesians 4, Paul will write that we need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The way we do this is through the Holy Spirit. We don't create peace. Jesus has already done that. We work to maintain the peace That the Holy Spirit has already done. And the way we do that is by following the Holy Spirit's leading. That's what we're united in. Where is the Holy Spirit leading us? He wants to help us look more and more like Jesus, right? And so that's the goal for every single person in this room. So how do you live at peace? How do you unite? It's by coming together and saying, hey, you're following the Holy Spirit. I'm following the Holy Spirit. Let's help each other look more like Jesus. That's what it means to be led by the Spirit. And if I may nerd out here for a second and how this relates to our text, in John's gospel, when Jesus says, Peace I leave you, my peace I give to you, right before he says that, he says, I'm going to give the comforter to you. Almost as if he's saying, Hey, the way in which I'm going to give you peace is I'm going to give you the comforter. Who's that? The comforter is the Holy Spirit. And in John's gospel, the way to describe the Holy Spirit is the comforter. Some of your translations will say advocate or counselor. But here's the thing. In the Greek, it's the exact same word as consolation, which is used here in Luke 2.25. In other words, guys, the Holy Spirit is the same as what Jesus does. As Jesus provides comfort to us through salvation, the Holy Spirit makes that come alive in our hearts, and that brings comfort. And we know we're being led by him when we're looking more and more like Jesus and finding more and more comfort in that. That's how we are brought together and united in peace. But here's the thing. We do that as a church, and that's going to cause conflict. It's going to cause conflict with the world. See, following Jesus, which is what the Holy Spirit wants to help us do, will naturally put us at odds with the world. It'll put us into conflict. Now, now I'm not arguing here that Christians can just go off and be jerks and then turn around and justify that and call that persecution. Like, I think sometimes Christians, you know, cry foul on, oh, they're, they're persecuting me. And it's like, actually, you're probably just mean and need to, like, examine your own life. But make no mistake, if we're expecting the world to be a cheerleader to our obedience, then we have another thing coming. Our world hates what is good and right and true and honest. I love what Tim Keller says. He says, you don't have to be Jesus Christ to get people furious at being exposed for what they are. Just living an honest, moral life will expose gossip in the office, corruption in government, and racism in the neighborhood. The manger at Christmas means that if you live like Jesus, there won't be room for you in a lot of ends. And I think therein lies the challenge as a church. If we take seriously the call to live at peace with one another, being led by the Holy Spirit, it means it will create conflict with the world. If we want to be led by the Spirit, it means we're going to run up against other people who want to lead themselves. But in this challenge, guys, there's an opportunity for us as a church. If we remain unified on this, if we commit to helping each other be led by the Spirit, and we actually live at peace with one another, then we can show the world what a true, lasting, complete peace looks like. Because all of us will be brought under the banner of the Holy Spirit. Let me close with this. Simeon's prayer in verses 29 through 30 again says this. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Since the fourth century, this statement, this verse, has become an evening prayer for Christians in the church. They pray it every single night. It's known as the nunc dimittis, I think is how you pronounce that. It's a Latin term. And here's the thing. The the reason this was set up as a prayer is because you would pray this every single night believing that if you didn't wake up in the morning and this is your last day on earth, you could die in peace because you knew what the salvation provided for you in Christ meant. My question for you this morning is, can you pray this prayer with confidence that no matter what conflict you are facing, You can truly have peace with God because of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. That you can truly have peace in your lives, trusting that God is in control. That the gift of the church has been given to you as a conflict to a certain degree to show the world what it looks like for people who have no reason to come together other than the fact that Jesus has saved them, what true peace actually can do. May this be our prayer today and every day. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this church. God, I pray that this morning, each person in here would recognize the gift that your spirit is to all of us, that as he helps lead us, he unifies us, and we can show the world what it means to have peace with you. For, for those in the, in the room, God, that it feels like their life is spinning out of control, God, I pray that you would meet them and that they would wrestle this week with that internal battle of giving you ultimate control. And I pray for anyone in this room who ultimately doesn't have peace with you through the cross of Jesus. There is no other peace unless you first have that. So for those in the room this morning who have never who have never repented of their sins and trusted in you, I pray that today would be the day of salvation and that they would find peace with you so that they can find peace in every other area of their life. Oh God, we ask this in your son's mighty name. Amen.